So today we are going to talk about a lot of like brain science again, and I feel like what I'm doing these next weeks and the weeks I've been doing are like concentric, is that the word, circles? They sort of overlap from the week before, and um, so that we're remembering and relearning and we've got some of those things, and I feel like even when I'm talking about scientific stuff today and psychology today, like scripture just keeps jumping out at me all around it, and what I love about, well even like when Diane came up with a word about paint by numbers, I think that you know, we are doing now by habit what we used to do by repetition. Paint by numbers for me is a critical thinking skill, which is the front part of the brain. Because I have to go, there's the one, and there's the two, and there's the three. And so how many of you know I'm thinking with the front part of my brain, right? I'm having to choose to find the one, to find the two, to find the three. To me, coloring outside of the lines, free flow, painting, is what I now just do by automatic response. I'm not having to follow the rules and make a conscious choice to do this and that and that. I'm living to, I'm getting to live out loud and paint freely with no constructs on my thinking. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. That's, I believe, where the Lord wants to get us. But in doing that, there are some behaviors some habits, some mindsets that have to be changed. That's, that's the renewing of the mind. And transformation is an inside job. And if transformation, Romans 12 says, comes by the renewing of your mind, then that renewing of the mind is probably the most critical thing we could do. I know that you've heard it said transformed people transform cities. So if we want to see our city transform, my responsibility is just to begin with me. So when I begin to look at my thoughts that I continually think, the patterns that then begin to develop into behaviors, into habits that I now don't even have to think anymore because it is an automatic response. That's just the way hills have always done things. This is what we do. This is how I've always been. Requires no growth and takes no responsibility. And you can stay there, but you will not have your mind renewed and you will not have your life completely transformed. So when I'm looking at behavior science, and I'm going to begin today with wounded behavior, why we do things the, we, the way we do. Um, in Psalm 139, I love it in the Passion Translation. Just jot down 139. It's verses 23 and 24. And it says, God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. See if there is any path of pain I'm walking on and lead me back to your glorious, everlasting ways, the path that brings me back to you. I love that. That's what we're doing. We are looking at pathways in our thinking. And some of us, all of us, are walking on some path, paths of pain. There's stuff that happened. 90% of the population, psychology and, the, and research says 90% of the population has been wounded in one way or another in childhood and in our early adult years. None of us gets to escape pain and wounding. It may come from a parent, a home that wasn't very nurturing. It may come from school where you felt rejected or not accepted, a teacher. Um, there's many, many different ways of pain, but I love this because our processing with God in the inner sanctum of our heart is what Amory was talking about during worship. It's what Michelle was talking about. Wink, but me. 
That is the processing with God that's going on that I might begin to then partner with him to have paths of pain identified so that I can then address the thoughts behind it, the behavior I started acting on, and then the habit that was formed. Okay? Okay. So let's talk about wounded behavior. Um, A wound is uh, when a traumatic event leaves a deep impact on a person's life experience. That's just a working definition of what a wound is. And wounds, um, we talked about in the beginning, we talked about uh, last week and the week before, that transformation does not automatically mean maturity. We get saved and we're super excited and we're like, yay, Jesus set me free. For whom the sun sets free shall be free indeed. And that is absolutely true. But we're then beginning a lifelong journey of sanctification, a process of transformation. And as he highlights things to me in a very easy way, like even popping a bag, <laughs> because Jesus said put all of your cares, anything that's on your mind that's causing you anxiety, put it in the bag and pop it. It could be as easy as that. So I'm not talking about, please don't hear me ever saying that I'm navel-gazing, I'm striving, I'm working. It is an easy, light load that Jesus gives us. Yeah. And participation with him is full of joy and life and light and love. Yeah. Okay? So in doing this, because sometimes I think that we can get so bogged down, and I know um, some counselors even, and I, and I don't particularly like or agree with this, that keep you going back to some traumatic event again and again and again. And in my opinion, what that's doing is reinforcing that pathway. Because we know by brain science and psychology what happens when we relive an event. Do you know that the brain doesn't know that it's not experiencing it? The brain actually starts begin, thinks that it's experiencing it again. So that's fine to recognize as a trigger, and we're going to talk about this at the end, to recognize as a trigger, but then I get to partner with Jesus and what are you saying in that event? What do you say about it? What is my future? What are your thoughts that you're thinking? What are my thoughts? What is my response? And I am now digging a new neuropathway towards healing and life. You see that? So I'm not talking about staying in this place. I'm talking about, yay, jumping ahead and, and allowing him to replace all of those things and dig a new pathway. So maturity comes as we learn how to do that. So today, okay, so let's just jump in because I got a lot to say. Wounded behavior happens unconsciously. And as we have over life, we learn how to develop good coping skills. And good coping skills also do not equal freedom. The wound has been healed. Jesus has set me free. I've gotten prayer for this particular thing. Say it's rejection. Jesus healed me of that wound. It is a finished work. Actually, everything was finished on the cross. It's a finished work. But why then do I do the same things and act the same way? That's wounded behavior that is a pathway that I'm not even aware I'm doing anymore. That's wounded behavior. Out of an old wound, even though the wound has been healed. Coping skills are great masks and mechanisms that we use to make it look like I got it all together. I know how to act in this situation. I've I've learned how to do this. And some of us have extremely good coping skills. And coping skills are great for one stage of life, and they're not so great forever. So, okay, wounded behavior begins to happen automatically in our non-conscious part of the brain without even have to, having to think about it anymore. 
So these are some of the psychological wounds that can happen from early childhood. Um, at least 90% of people, I told you, have some sort of psychological wound, and it can display itself as a fragmented personality, disabled true self. It could be excessive shame, low self-esteem, excessive guilt, excessive anxieties and different fears, fears of failure, fear of criticism, fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of intimacy, fear of loss of control, or fear of the unknown. It can also manifest as um, difficulties with self-trust. I don't even trust myself, or interpersonal trust. It can also manifest as reality distortions, like chronic denial, or minimizing pain, or idealizing and fantasizing, projecting, numbing. All of those can be uh, symptoms and a manifestation of a wound. And then me deciding to numb, I'm coping, right? That's a coping skill. Me learning how to um, act like I'm not afraid of rejection because I'm going to be so confident and just be all that for everyone. And people-pleasing is a coping mechanism, right? So all of those at the end, and hopefully we'll have time to do that, we're going to identify maybe a, maybe a predominant thing that we do see over the course of our life manifesting and be able to go back and go, okay, that's why I, I do that. And that's not necessarily the best. That's not necessarily where he has me right now. And so um, combinations of all those wounds can cause difficulty feeling. Like I don't even know how to feel. I'm so hardened now. I'm so numbed. I've allowed to stay so distracted in my fantasy world so I don't have to really feel what's really going on. Um, it, it creates problems with bonding, with empathizing with others, from loving. And so it helped, I mean, wounds or wounded people, they tend to be aware of, unaware of, um, certain personality stuff, relationships, effective communication, maybe learning how to help deal with healthy grief. Um, effective parenting, all of those things are affected. I hope you put a picture of it with me in a hat teaching a Bible study. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing, unrecognized wounds, when they're not dealt with, lie in our unawareness. That's not even probably the proper way to say it. Unconscious. So unrecognized wounds that you are not aware of can lie or lay in your unconscious, subconscious part of your brain until you bring them forward and choose to deal with them, okay? We're going to look at that in a minute. And so wounds create false beliefs. Um, the wound then begins to stir up negative feelings because I'm believing a lie. Wounds then cause emotional upheaval. So like the wounds and the false belief say I felt like um, I'm such a disappointment. I'm just always a disappointment to people. I was a disappointment to my parents. I'm a disappointment to my husband. I'm a disappointment to God. I'm constantly afraid of disappointing people. That, can you see that's a clear, then it traced back. I could see that that's a, that's a path. It began from a thought, or maybe then people and circumstances reinforced it. 
and then it caused an emotional upheaval in me. So the wound and false beliefs that begin to lead to shame, sadness, depression, and other wounded feelings. That then is what leads to dysfunctional behavior. That's what leads to, this occurs when people respond to their pain in an unhealthy, negative way. So, the first thing is becoming aware or pay attention to what is the wound, what is the false belief, how am I behaving out of it, and recognize, is it true? Am I a disappointment to my parents? Am I a disappointment to God? Am I a disappointment to my husband, my children, and everyone around me? Is that true? No. It's not true. Is it real? It feels real. Then let's go. First, it's not true. Then you're going to deal with the feeling of it. So only when we become aware of what I was, the original thought, the original lie, the feelings that I'm feeling around it, the behavior that's acting out of it, only can, when I do that can real healing, real transformation begin to take place. Because the renewing of my mind that happens there is by choice. I am rewiring my mind to think like God thinks. I am accessing the thoughts of Holy Spirit because I have constant access to that. I have constant access to him, but in some areas I realize I have to do that by choice. It's like I was thinking back here, thinking about through the teaching and where I wanted to go and oftentimes I have tons, I do, look at, I've got books and all this stuff, but I start to say, like, but let me access your thoughts. Let me think like you think. Let me follow your train of thought in this, and it immediately made me think of Sean Bowles. And I can remember the first time I heard, heard Sean say this, and even last week when I said it here, I felt a little envious, like, dang, that would be so cool. Sean Bowles has learned by repetition, um, words of knowledge. And the way that he describes it is when he was asked about words of knowledge, he said, it's like I share headspace with God. I move into a place where I'm not even thinking about it anymore. It is not a conscious thought. I just realize that I'm accessing his thoughts and it's automatic. He has done that by risk. He has done it by choice over and over and over. And he has learned to know what it feels like, know what it looks like, know what it sounds like to access the thoughts of God and share headspace with God. And back here, when I was thinking about this, and oh my gosh, how am I going to do all this, and where am I going to go? The Lord said, it's just like Sean Bowles. <laughs> when I step into a teaching anointing that I have learned to count on for 20-something years, when I step into a teaching anointing, I'm sharing headspace with God. Over there, I'm freaking out, going, oh my Lord, I've got too much to say. It's not going to come together. It's like all this. But I've learned to trust. When I mean, you hear people say, lean on the anointing, I am not consciously thinking about the anointing. I'm sharing headspace with God, and every one of us has access to that because the anointing is in you. When I learn to trust and lean on the anointing, I am flowing freely with access to think like he thinks, to say what he's saying, to know what he wants to do in a given circumstance. Does that make sense to y'all? Yes. So even if it's not a teaching anointing, maybe it's a different anointing, it's a different flow that you just can trust and rely on, you can then learn how to access that same grace, that same, same anointing in a different area of your life. Because it's the same grace. It's the same anointing. It may not be a teaching anointing, but it's anointing because he is the anointing. You're smeared with him. Holy Spirit, right? Does that make sense? Yes. 
So, when I become aware that I can think like he thinks, I begin to, it requires choice, it requires effort, it requires me then to bring what had been laying in my subconscious part of my brain to the forefront of my mind and hold it there. Um, I'm going to read Ephesians 6 in the Passion Translation. Ephesians 6, uh, verse 17. And the Passion says, Embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance, like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies, and take the mighty spirit sword of the spoken word of God. So salvation's full deliverance, salvation means save, heal, deliver, right? It's not just ticket to heaven. So I have access on my mind, it protects my thoughts from believing lies. Now I want you to turn to James 1, and I'm going to read it in the Passion Translation. If you don't have the Passion Translation, I think you should get it. And it just came out in a full version, which is awesome. Like the, every one of it, it's in one book. Instead of like me, I carry around 10 little books. James 1, verse 13. Wait a minute. Y'all in them right now? Would you please wait till afterwards to order your coffee from Amazon? It'll probably be there at your doorstep when you get home. I swear, it's getting scary how fast it is. I'm looking for the drone going. It's about to drop it on my porch at any minute now. Or Alexa is just going to make it magically appear. She's starting to freak me out, too. Oh, my gosh. Okay. James 1, verse 13 says... When you are tempted, don't ever say God is tempting me. For God is incapable of being tempted by evil, and he is never the source of temptation. Instead, it is each person, uh, person's own desires and thoughts that drag them into evil and lure them away into darkness. Evil desires give birth to evil actions. And when sin is fully mature, it can murder you. I wish he'd, I can't remember how he translates evil right there. I can't read it. Gosh, those footnotes are small. Um, wait a minute. I wanted to read something else, too. <coughs> Is that James 1? Oh, there we go. Okay. Now let's turn to verse 19. My dearest brothers and sisters, take this to heart. Be quick to listen, but slow to speak. Be slow to become angry. For human anger is never a legitimate tool to promote God's righteous purpose. So this is why we abandon every filthy habit and all forms of wicked conduct. Instead, with a sensitive spirit, we absorb God's manifestation, which has been implanted within our nature. For the word of life has the power to continually deliver us. Don't just listen to the word of truth and not respond to it, for that in the, is the essence of self-deception. So let's just look at, it's evil's a strong word, right? But let's just look at it as a thought outside of God. Because you are the righteousness of Christ in um, God in Christ Jesus. You have access to his thoughts. So an evil thought, an evil desire is one that is disconnected from his character, his nature, and his will. And it says that those things 
will drag you and lead you away into darkness. We looked at Hebrews 3 last week that says it's what causes actually our heart to become hardened so that we're unresponsive to the voice of the living God. So I can't afford to have those thoughts. And so then it tells me the key, the key over here is that the way to do that is with a sensitive spirit, okay? With a sensitive spirit, my spirit man has now been implanted with divine DNA. I have a new nature, and I'm sensitive, and I'm responsive to his leading. And so I'm absorbed. I love how it says this. You're absorbed with God's manifestation, Holy Spirit. He is living in me. He's implanted in me. So now my nature has the potential to change and become who he says that I am. Everything that you will ever need for life and godliness is yours in Christ Jesus, and he is in you. The reason that I love the word becoming, who I am becoming, and who I'm unbecoming, is because it's all already been given to me. I am awakening to it and learning to respond to it. It's not like I'm trying to do and learn something that's outside of me, following rules. I am simply becoming who I've been all along, and I might not have known it. I was unaware. Real religion tells us do this and do that and obey that so that you can have this. And follow rules. That's what religion says. Freedom, grace says be, become in order to be or be in order to become. It's not trying. It's not doing. It's not striving. It is all come by gift. Do y'all see that? That's how how... So in this instance, my inner man is sensitive and responsive to the voice of Holy Spirit in me to think like he thinks. And that word of life that's implanted in me is changing me every day. You literally do become what you behold. As I behold him in a mirror, I am being changed from glory to glory. When I am full of shame and fear of hurting people and disappointing people and rejection and all of that stuff, and I am looking down and beholding dirt, dirt, and I'm beholding dirt, and it's more people are just reinforcing that, and circumstances are reinforcing that, what am I then becoming and attracting more, you know? And so when we really re begin to recognize every single one of us, who he actually created me to be, who he says I am, what he thinks of me, we become these fierce, mighty lionesses who are like, oh no, you're not gonna talk about me that way, right? Because I'm really beginning to believe in my heart. My thoughts are really lining up with it and how do I know it? Because my words are saying it and my behavior is showing it. That's who we are becoming, if we are not already. And none of us have arrived. I am like on this journey, you know? So thoughts that I had, I'm a constant disappointment, lead to habits. I'm gonna do everything I can to not disappoint you. I'm gonna become a perfectionist. I am gonna make straight A's. I'm gonna be the captain of the team. I am gonna, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that because I am going to show you that I won't disappoint you. I'm becoming all things to all people. I'm gonna do cartwheels and sing and dance for you. So have any of you tried to live your life that way? Because me and I did in my early years. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. 
because I am trying to do and be and sing and dance out of a false identity, out of false reality expectations and didn't understand I am already all that. He has made me that. So those are the things that we're going after in here. Um, and the word itself, the manifestation of Holy Spirit, the living, breathing voice of God is what has the power to save, to heal, and to deliver our souls. Your personality, your emotions can be healed, your thoughts can be healed. All of that he is transforming. If we listen, though, it says, and don't do anything with it, we're self-deceived. How many times have we sat in a sermon and been like, and somebody starts talking about something. Say they start talking about this, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is the third time this week I've had somebody teach on this. And oh yeah, I knew that part. She already said that last week. And oh yeah, that's good, because I knew that too. And I'm listening to the word, and all of a sudden, I'm becoming an expert on it. I mean, I can get up and preach it myself. If I don't do anything with it and actually go out and choose to arrest a thought, change my behavior, change a habit, if, it, if the message is on giving to the poor, and I'm like, yes, we should all give to the poor, and I've never given one cent my entire life, I am deceived. So we can't just listen and never do. We have to listen and put it into practice. Why? Because brain science says that what I listen and hold in the front of my brain, consciously choosing, and I determine to do something about it day after day after day, after day, what I once did by choice and deliberation will become an automatic response and a habit. Why do some of you read your Bibles every single morning when you get up? It's just the first thing you do before you do other things. You've probably done it for 20 years, some of you who are my age. 50 years. It is now, you don't even have to think about it anymore. Like what about, how many of you get coffee first thing in the morning? I don't want to say this right now because I'm going to jump ahead. Coffee first thing in the morning, I don't even have to think about it. My alarm goes off. I'm like, oh my gosh, I get my glasses. Turn the sleep machine off. I stumble down to get my coffee. I get my coffee. And if there's not coffee, oh. <laughs> Very upset. It's just a habit now. But it once wasn't. I once chose. I had to make a choice. So we are learning. We're having to learn to exercise new muscles. So when I start to talk about brain science and psychology and all of that, it's partly why I love quantum physics. I love how quantum physics, to me, um, begins to explain and describe what's happening in the, in the invisible realm. It helps us to see in the invisible. I feel like brain science helps us to have an awareness and understand what is happening. I get to see and know and understand the things that are going on in my brain that I don't, I'm not even aware of anymore because I, it's unconscious to me now. Your identity who you are lies in your unconscious part of your brain. You don't have to think, I'm a woman. You don't have to think, you know, I'm, my last name's Festy. I don't have to, there's all of these things. It's just subconscious, right? But there's new parts of our identity that we need to step into by deliberate choice. There's new things that I'm going to have to do, new paths to walk on. <clears throat> okay. I'm not going to read it, but Romans 8, I'm not going to read it just because I want to do so much other stuff. Romans 8 talks about, oh, Lord, mercy. Okay, let's look at it. 
you know what? If we don't get as far as I wanted to today, it's okay. Write these things down. Romans 8, it goes on to talk about the mindset of the flesh is death. The mindset of the spirit is life, okay? And we have, we're, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and we're able to access his thoughts. This is the gist of it. There's no, no, no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He set us free. But now we're learning to think like he thinks by accessing his thoughts. So is this thought, this is, these are the good gut check questions, and we're going to do this at the end too. If I am now having to recognize and choose by deliberation to arrest some of those thoughts, take them captive, is this thought consistent with God's thoughts about me? Is this thought that I'm thinking consistent with God's thoughts about me? Is this thought consistent with my identity? And does my behavior reflect that? So when we're talking about thoughts, and I think that thought, we're going to learn how to arrest the thought, bring it to the forefront of my mind, hold it there, and now begin to form behavior and habit out of that. My, my questions? Is that this thought consistent with God's thought about me? Is the thought consistent with my identity? And does my behavior reflect that? If you remember last week and the week before, we talked about mindsets. And we talked about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. I don't want to go into that again. You can listen to the teaching. But um, identity... The unconscious part that I told you about, identity runs in the fast track. I don't have to think about it. Um, identity operates faster and more powerfully than choices. It's why we, at Kingdom Life, identity is everything. Like we, almost every message is laced with identity. Because identity is who I am. It operates more powerfully and faster than deliberate thought. It's why you manifest who you are. It's why we can even say when you go into a room, sometimes it's not even about what you say or don't say. It is about you manifesting the core of your identity, who you are. You can shift an atmosphere. So when I meditate on that, and we're going to look at it, so I bought this other journal. I've got so much with me today. When I learn to meditate on that and murmur on that with who God says I am, that is growing larger and larger and larger. I don't even have to think about it anymore. Like when you were young, I gave it to my children when they were young. Did y'all have that I am statements? Like what the Bible says, I am. And I put it on the mirror of my kids' bathroom so that they, because life is bombarding them, especially in school and junior high is a mess, right? So to look at I am a new creation in Christ. I am the righteousness of God. I am the apple of his eye. I am, I am, I am. When I am confessing who I am and that voice is living and active and it's piercing into the depths of me, it is creating my identity. 
That's why it's so important. So if identity is happening on the fast track, it happens more powerfully than choices. So let's not say that. Let me talk, let's talk about thoughts for a minute. I'm going to start to talk a little bit about habits, okay? And we're going to, that's what we're going to do the rest of the time. And so we have to know about brain neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is the way that the brain reorganizes itself by forming new connections through life, through repetition, practice, and training. Neuroplasti neuroplasticity of the brain is the way that the brain reorganizes itself by forming new connections throughout life through repetition, practice, and training. They once thought, thought that our brains were static or, pla or, or um, plastic, that they wouldn't change. Not plastic. Static? I don't know what they're. Static, yeah. <laughs> that they couldn't change, wouldn't change. But brain science now knows by looking into the brain, because before they didn't have any way to get into the brain, but now that they do, they know that the brain can change deliberately through repetition and training. So, so neurons that fire together, wire together. That every single day our thoughts and our behaviors are creating our brain's connections and thus our life experiences. So what you choose to pay attention to focus on will be the primary influence of how your brain develops. So some things gain your attention first, pain, injury, health problems, crisis in the lives of people that you love or yourself. Those things are gaining your attention first. How you choose to process, reframe, and work through those issues will be the deciding factor in how your brain chemistry ultimately settles as a result. So you literally can retrain your brain, create new neurological pathways. I want to talk just for a second about thoughts and then we're going to talk about habits. We have to remember, this is quantum physics, we have the power to control our thoughts. I don't have to just entertain every thought that comes my way. I think a thought, I don't have to assume it was my own thought. It could be the thought of the enemy. It could be a thought implanted by somebody else. It could be the world system speaking to me in that thought. Or it could be my own thoughts. Or it could be the thought of Holy Spirit. Right? And I told you last week that when a thought comes, when somebody spews vomit on you, when somebody speaks negatively over you, you, your brain, you have 48 hours while that energy is floating around to choose to cast that thing down or accept it. So for 48 hours, it is up to me. It's my responsibility. God has given me power within myself to not accept that thought. I reject it, and I cast it down. I arrest it. I take it captive, and I make it obey what God says. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. I take that thought. It does not line up with who God says I am. It is not true. I, will, I refuse to make it a part of my identity and believe it. So I'm taking it captive, and I'm... I'm enslaving it to Jesus and what he says about me. That happens on a neuroplastic level. That is a, it's brain science. It's not just a spiritual truth. It's both. It's so powerful. So if I can just remember that, like Kelly said, we have 48 hours, and I don't have to choose to think this thought. So if I do that again and again, my automatic response begins to recognize, 
Truth from lies. Truth from lies. False. True. No. Yes. Okay. That's that is beginning. My identity is getting so solidified in truth and in who He says I am. And so, on a quantum physics level, I'm going to read you this from a quantum, quantum physics definition. The atmospheric air in which this earth floats is a form of energy moving at an inconceivably high rate of vibration, and it is filled with a form of universal power which adapts itself to the nature of the thoughts we hold in our minds, and it influences us in natural ways to transmute our thoughts into their physical equivalent. It's saying the unseen realm becomes seen. What did Abraham do? He hoped against hope. He believed that he would become the father of nations, as the Lord had said. And even though Sarah's womb was good as dead, and even though he was 90, what, nine years old, he believed that he would become, and he was. The thoughts that he held in his mind, the things that he chose to meditate on and remind himself of, and Sarah had to do the same thing, that predominant thought, the truth of God that he had spoken to them, became Isaac. Isn't that powerful? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We become what we behold. So even on a scientific level, this is what they're telling me. This is The other thing, it's true, it's just as true for a negative as it is a positive. The brain does not distinguish between the two at random. It just does what it was designed to do. The power makes no attempt to discriminate between destructive thoughts and constructive thoughts. It's a spiritual law. It's a principle set in motion, just like the law of gravity. The dominating thoughts we hold in our minds attract to us the forces, people, circumstances of life, which harmonize with the nature of the dominating thoughts. Our brains become magnets of attraction. Now, you can remember the book, The Secret. You can listen to people say the law of attraction. And we can say it's new age all day long. And you know what? They are using it for that. But it is a deeply, it's a biblical principle. It is what the word says. Universal power is God. The voice that created the universe, the energy that is still creating is the voice of God. Jesus holds all things together in him. His voice is still speaking. And as I learn to reverberate and vibrate in the same in symphony with what he is saying, I am growing up and maturing to be the true likeness of Christ and the truest version of Kelly. But when I am meditating on and beginning to harmonize with the voice of the world, the status quo, the conform, fit in, try to just be somebody you're not so that people like you, that's not transformation. That's conformity. And I will begin to attract more of that to myself, and I will begin to act on it more. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm making sense to myself. Does this make sense? Okay. So as I'm doing that, as I am thinking on those thoughts, and I am choosing to hold them, I can develop a new habit. And that's what I want to look at now, and we're going to do a little practice of it at the end. Um, I told you last week, habits are formed. We have gray matter in our brain, and we have white matter. And gray matter is very flexible, and it can figure out a new reality and path as it goes. 
And to keep from getting bogged down, the brain creates habits that are pre-packaged responses to known situations. And hold, I'm going to explain. We're going to get into it more in a minute, okay? That's what gray matter does. White matter, or myelin, begins to wrap around the neurons in the gray matter and thickens and strengthens them. And once properly insulated, that cluster will run up to 200 times faster than gray matter. Gray matter is in the front of my brain. It's what I have to choose to bring and think their critical thinking. It's, I told you about the taxi drivers. When they studied their brains, they had a thicker white matter in that area of their brain because they had to learn visual spatial maps just to know everywhere they went. It became an automatic response. So white matter operates up to 200 times faster and that's where habits are formed. Habits are faster. Habits, habit, habits emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort, to free up gray matter, to think other thoughts. You know, um, I do the same things. A lot of people, I know when you exercise, you begin to connect with God and think what he's thinking and hear from God and pray. The, ha the running is now, I don't have to think about putting one foot in front of the other. I'm not having to go left leg, right leg, right, left foot. I'm not thinking that. I'm doing something. My brain is freed up because running is easy for me now. It maybe wasn't easy for me when I was two, but at this age, it's easy for me. I do not have to waste any energy or thought to think how to run, and it frees up my brain to dream with God, to have impulses of thought and energy accessing, oh my gosh, do you, so do y'all do experience that when you run? Maybe it's in the shower. It's almost like a preconditioned response. You get in the shower and you just feel God. It's like Pavlov's dog. And you begin to think with God and dream with him and get new ideas and new solutions and new strategies. We were having this conversation last week. I wish, and many schools do, but when one of my sons was in school, he thinks very differently. His brain works very differently. Um, and so he had difficulty in school because when you're in a school that says it is left brain thinking, it is you learn the system, you learn the analytical, the critical thinking, and one plus two equals three, and you're going to spit that information out for a test. When you don't think that way, that's very difficult. So to access the right brain, the other hemisphere of the brain, if he had just been allowed to bounce a ball, which would be very annoying, I realize, for everybody else, squeeze a ball, chew gum, do something that is freeing up brain matter to think differently. Do y'all know? Like, so kids that think, that learn that way, we have to give them something that they now just do by habit, that automatically they don't have to think about it anymore, and now it has opened up this entire new filing system to retrieve the information for the test. It's the same for all of us in anything. It's our brain wants to conserve energy, our brain wants us to be able to stay in a place of rest. And the Bible says even that you were hardwired for love, for peace, for rest, for joy. He designated, he wired us to respond to that. That is a place of rest for me. When I'm having to consciously think and act and do, that is more, that, that takes more effort and it takes more energy. 
So when I'm beginning to put good practices and develop good habits that then do not require so much energy anymore, it frees me up to think a new thought, to do something different, to try something new. Okay? Um, so white brain matter, it's important to understand because habits that are formed there go into operation before our conscious thought engages. It's like putting toothpaste on your toothbrush. You don't grab your toothbrush and just start brushing your teeth. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you don't use toothpaste. But, you know, it's like you don't. You just put toothpaste on it. When I'm going to go out and run, I don't even have to think about how to lace up my shoes. I know how to lace up my shoes anymore. No. It's like some places when I go to work, like we laughed last week, I can drive places in town, never even have one thought about how I got there. I'm like, wow, I'm at HEB. That's scary. <laughs> I don't remember stopping at a stop sign. <laughs> I don't remember seeing anyone else. It's like you just go into autopilot, right? That is a neuro pathway that is just fixed. It's just, it's so easy for me now. So how we are able to think thoughts and develop identity with uh, the identity with who God says I am is important because that then, I don't even have to think, Kelly, be kind. Kelly, use a soft answer, turns away wrath. I don't have to think, Kelly, choose life. I don't have to think, Kelly, don't speak words of death because now it's an automatic response flowing from my identity. Now, when I'm a baby, new believer, and I've, you know, lived a life of hell for 50 years, I might have to think about that, right? I'm going to have to think not to let the word at the top of my head fly out of my mouth. Or if I'm an angry person, punch the guy in front of me for getting, cutting me off. Like, I don't... So we learn those things. So... What do we have time for now? Hang on. Do you have any questions before I, as I try to find where I was going next? Yes, I, I do. Yeah, go for it. So, is this under the assumption that we're not distracted when we're entering into this <coughs> subcon, like this? Subcon Very good segue. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> She's a plant. <laughs> because I feel like I'm always distracted. I know. Okay, so let's look at that. This, this, I just, now we're going to talk, literally we're going to talk about what are habits. Okay. Like the scientist, science behind habits. It's a great book I'm reading called The Power of Habit. Um, we're going to look at it in a second. If you have a strong habit, let's look at this. They did a test case. Her name was Lisa. I think her name was Lisa Harmon. And she was at, I think it was in Maryland, the University of Maryland. Uh, I read it down somewhere. Somewhere. Maryland, or it could have been MIT. Scientists were, tr this, were trying to discover exactly how someone's brain works in people of, that completely, radically changed their lives. Like somebody who was morbidly obese, who was a chain smoker, who was a heavy, heavy drinker, in debt, this is this girl, Lisa, heavily in debt, recently divorced, husband left her, her life was an absolute mess. How can they study why all of a sudden, in a seemingly short period of time, she had radically transformed her life? Okay, so Lisa, she's 34 years old. She's recently divorced, to tell you, depressed. She, husband left her for another woman. She was completely depressed, and she had the thought, I, I really would like to go to Egypt. She's like maxed out all of her credit cards just to get to Egypt. And while she's in Egypt, she has the thought, you know, I would really like to come back here and trek across the desert in Egypt. But she's thinking, I'm morbidly obese. I'm a chain smoker. I... I'm a chronic drinker, I have no money, 
And how am I going to track across Egypt? And this is, they said, she made one decision. I guess if I'm going to trek across Egypt, I should stop smoking. I need to stop smoking. She didn't say, I need to lose weight. I need to save some money. I need to quit smoking. I need to, she didn't say all those because that's overwhelming. She chose one thing. And one, it so says, one small shift in Lisa's perception that day in Cairo. The conviction that she had to give up smoking to accomplish her goal had touched off a series of changes that would ultimately radiate to every area of her life. She replaced, so what she did is she went home, she replaced smoking with jogging. And I'm going to talk about the loop of a habit in a minute. She replaced smoking with jogging. When she would be triggered or have a cue that she wanted to smoke, she decided to put on her tennis shoes and jog instead. As she began jogging, that began to change how she ate. And she just started eating better. She wasn't even thinking about it. She just thought, you know what? I, I want to eat better. She began saving money. She began scheduling her work day differently. She began planning for the future. She went on to run a half marathon. She ran on to run a full marathon. She went back to school. She got engaged, got married. She had children. One set of neurological patterns, her habits, had been overridden by new patterns and habits. We could make excuses. We could say, it's just too difficult. I have just too much. It's too overwhelming. I have too much weight to lose. I have no money and no possibility of making money. I've, you know, we can make all of these excuses or we can make one quality decision that has the power to change the rest of my life. Every single one of us in here has the ability to do that. So when they studied her brain, they could still see the neural activity of her old behaviors. They could see the traces of it there, but the impulse, impulses were crowded out by new urges, new impulses. As Lisa's habits changed, so did her brain. It's not that you didn't see it there anymore. It's just she made new, stronger ones that she was operating out of. Does it say how they saw that? Like, could they actually see, like, divots? Yeah. How some were not as deep? They saw it. That, so with, they put those the tra neurotransmitters in their brain, and they're, they're looking at impulses on a screen, okay. impulses of light, and some are fainter and some are more organized, and then the others. And so those which sort of receded, the others were stronger that they could identify. That's so cool. Isn't it cool? So just one habit, quit smoking, set off every change in her life. Um, okay, so and I'm going to get to your question in a minute about distraction, okay? Uh-huh. And so, and, and, and what I was reading, and so they, we talk about a habit loop. We're going to look at a habit loop, and we're going to learn how to identify one of ours and make a new loop. 
with that, the ritual thinking. It's like, I don't know if I remember I mentioned, did I mention t- Tony Dungy last week? Tony Dungy, um, when he was the co- co- coach for, before he came, the coach for the Colts, he was for Buccaneers, losing his team, losing. He went for four job interviews with all these different teams, and he didn't ever get a job because he said, when they asked him his strategy to win games and go to the Super Bowl, it was habits. I'm going to work on habits. And they're like, habits? When they finally did hire him and the Colts did go in to win the Super Bowl, although not with him, I think it was the coach that came right after him, he worked on the players' habits that every day, deliberately, they began to operate out of instinct and didn't even have to think about it anymore. They just responded quickly, a half a second quicker than the other team. We'll win a game. So I think that's so powerful. So a craving, so cravings happen, first sight, okay, nicotine, alcohol, sugar, whatever, um, happens in the center of our brain, actually the basal ganglia. And it's associated, that part of the brain is associated with craving and hunger. So hers, the scientists could see on the scan was still active, that the brain still was producing the urges that made her overeat. However, new activity in the forefront of her head where behavioral inhibition and self-discipline starts, that activity has become more pronounced each time she made new choices, like the taxi drivers. So Laura's saying, every single day when I choose, I'm going to do this instead of that. I'm digging a deeper neuropathway that is going to lead to an automatic response or a habit. Most of the choices that we make each day may feel like the byproducts of well-considered decision-making, but they're not. They're habits. Brushing your teeth, driving to work, Whatever it is you say goodbye to your husband every day, you might say the same thing to your kids when they go to sleep. Like, we have certain things that we just say, and I laugh, I do recognize it's funny, the certain things Joey and I say to each other, the kids and I say to each other before you go to bed and when you wake up in the morning. I don't even think about it anymore, it just flies out of my mouth. It's a habit. So habits, I told you about the rats last week, right? With the, the chocolate. So let's talk about that again really quickly. The basal ganglia, where habits form. When the, when the rats were put in the maze, and they heard the click. It was a cue. Oh, I'm gonna go. When they first did it, their brains were working furiously. When they looked at their brains, the basal ganglia is firing furiously, looking for information, looking for information, processing, processing. And it would be sniffing and searching, it would turn right, and finally go left and find the chocolate. Whew, pleasure. Brain stimulation, pleasure. So the more they did that T maze, the faster and faster they could zip through. They didn't make as many mistakes. And then uh, then after a while, once they heard the cue, the trigger was just automatic. So the only time they saw the brain fire then was at the beginning with the trigger noise. And then at the end, chocolate, pleasure. And so they didn't even have to choose or make uh, observations or think about it anymore and that's called chunking the brain converts sequences of actions into automatic routine so that it frees up space frees up energy chunking mm-hmm. that is where habits are formed and so that's where the gray matter is free to then quit quiet itself and chase after other thoughts 
<laughs> Habits emerge because the brain is consciously looking for ways to save effort. Left to its own devices, the brain will try to make any routine into a habit. And don't forget, your mind tells your brain what to do. God, why did God give us a sound mind, a healthy mind? Why can we access the things of God, think on these things, choose to think this way, meditate on this? Because left to its own devices, the brain will try to make any routine a habit. Because habits allow our minds to ramp down more often. And that effort-saving instinct is a huge advantage. So as they studied those rats, there was, it's called a habit loop. There was a cue, which was a click. And they knew immediately with that click, it's like Pavlov's dog, they think reward, chocolate. They didn't think that the first time, the 10th time, the 20th, or maybe even the 50th, but by the 100th time, automatic response, click, they think chocolate, reward. That part, finding it, was routine. It was unconscious by that point. It was just habit. They didn't even think about it anymore. The trigger increases the brain activity, and it tells the brain what to do automatically. Okay, the cue and the reward, it creates a powerful sense of anticipation and craving. Let me read you this. So I'm hoping that y'all are like, when I'm saying this, things are like popping up and you're going, ooh, that like makes total sense in this area of my life. Or do you know what I mean? Like, um, can be ignored, changed, or replaced. But the reason the discovery of the habit loop is so important is that it reveals a basic truth. When a habit emerges, the brain stops fully participating in decision-making. It stops working so hard or diverts focus to other tasks. So unless you deliberately fight a habit, unless you find new routines, the pattern will unfold automatically. However, simply understanding how habits work, learning the structure of the habit loop, makes them easier to control. Once you break a habit into its components, you can fiddle with the gears. Habits never really disappear. They're encoded into the structures of our brain, and that's a huge advantage for us because it would be awful if we had to reason how to drive after every vacation. <laughs> Although I did get in my car after being gone for three weeks thinking, this is weird driving again. <laughs> Um, the problem is that your brain can't tell the difference between bad and good habits. And so if you have a bad one, it's always lurking there, waiting for the right cues and rewards. This explains why it's so hard to create habits, for instance, or to change what we eat. So there's so much really cool research. So they were researching a guy who is the one that invented Pepsodent back in the, during World War II, actually. Do you know that before World War II, even back then, people didn't brush their teeth? Like it wasn't a big thing. Like people just, lots of people, the, the way that they discovered, oh gosh, we got to take care of it, is the veterans, or the, not the veterans, but the men out at war, the main problem they were having was rotten teeth. Their teeth were rotting. So they started developing toothpaste and nobody thought it would sell. And this guy, Larry Squire, um, started to study back then what was happening. And they came across an advertiser who developed 
the advertising slogans for Pepsodent, toothpaste. And they knew that you're gonna have to trigger a cue and dangle a reward so that people will begin to create routines or habits to get that reward. So, like for instance, even McDonald's, I think Target's the same way. McDonald's, they create them in such a way that they all look exactly the same. The employees are trying to say the same thing. The food is the same. The french fries are engineered that immediately upon tasting them, salt explodes in your mouth to produce pleasure, reward, that causes us to go back every time because I know what to expect when I go to McDonald's. I know when I drive through Chick-fil-A, they're going to say, my pleasure, not no problem, right? It's creating in us a sense of pleasure and reward that we've come to expect. So we do things that we don't even recognize. Cinnabon, Cinnabon, so most in malls, most food places are in the food court. They're all together. But did you notice Cinnabon isn't? And you know why? They don't want all those other smells mixed up with the smell of that cinnamon. And they know when people walk into the mall and they smell that cinnamon, they're going to go get a roll because that's all they can think of. There's a trigger. There's a cue. Oh, my gosh, cinnamon. Like, I hate, I don't even eat sweets, but I'm going to go get a cinnamon. I mean, don't y'all do that? There's that pretzel place that does the same thing. It's like all of a sudden I'm innocently walking down the mall and I smell pretzels. And I'm like, that's all I can think about. I just want a pretzel. There's things that are, are developed in us to go after that that derails all of my conscious thought and reason. <laughs> okay? So craving, they found out, craving is what makes cues and rewards work. Craving powers that habit loop. It derails all my other thought. I'm just, like, going to go after the reward. So back to the Pepsodent guy. He was like, this is never going to work. I'm going to have to figure out a way to get people who are not used to buying toothpaste to actually buy toothpaste. So he first had a first few failed attempts, and then he was reading an article one day, and he read about plaque that created a yucky film on people's teeth. So he started advertising how gross it was to have this film on your teeth. And don't you want to have beautiful, pretty smiles? And film does not make a beautiful smile. And so he was dangling the reward, beautiful smile, and the trigger is as soon as, and he would tell people on the billboards, run your, run your tongue over your teeth. Do you feel a film? Man, you better get some Pepsodent so you can have a beautiful smile. And all of a sudden, it exploded. What they, everyone said would never work, the sales exploded. But that wasn't enough. Dangling good smiles, and feeling the grossness of the film on their teeth wasn't enough. Once they added the peppermint taste, the tingling sensation in their mouth, everyone was racing to get toothpaste because that tingling is a big enough reward that I would go buy Pepsi in it every single week at the grocery store. Isn't that interesting? People wanted pretty smiles, but they also wanted the sensation of tasting that peppermint. So find a simple and obvious cue, feel film on the teeth. Clearly define the rewards, pretty smile. Develop a routine or a habit. That's the habit loop. So if you need a new exercise routine, um, example like, if I decide I'm gonna run every single morning, is my desire for running, because I'm gonna, I love the way it feels, I'm gonna have endorphins, it's just gonna make me healthier. Is it to be skinny, is it whatever the reward is for you? Maybe it's when I come home, then I'm just gonna be able to reward myself with you know, whatever food it is you enjoy. 
You have to, in the morning, put my tennis shoes by the bed. Something has to trigger me. Put my tooth, my, I should put my tennis shoes by the coffee maker. If I would deliberately choose every single morning to grab my tennis shoes before the coffee, over and over and over, knowing that I'm going to get this reward, I'm developing a habit loop. I'm developing a new routine that is going to reward me at the end. Another research they did at MIT was um, on monkeys. And this monkey named Julio uh, would sit in front of a computer and he learned, they taught him every time he saw shapes and colors or squiggled lines, he was supposed to pull this trigger, pull a, pull a lever. And the more and more he learned it, there's a shape, there's a squiggle line, there's a color, he'd pull the trigger, he'd pull the trigger. He knew that at the end of it, when he pulled the trigger, they would drizzle down blackberry juice onto his tongue through this tube. So he'd see it, he'd get blackberry juice. He'd pull the trigger, blackberry juice. Pull the trigger, get blackberry juice. And he knew that he was gonna get a reward. Some monkeys were easily distracted. In fact, they created distractions. But Julio, literally, they would stare intensely at this computer screen all day long waiting for the shapes to jump out so he could pull and get his blackberry juice. So a new pattern emerged, craving. Like craving he, if he didn't, so then they started withholding the blackberry juice. They put the colors on the screen and he would pull the trigger, no blackberry juice. Pull the trigger, no blackberry juice. And he would get distraught. He would become freak out because left unsatisfied, he got angry, frustrated, and then depressed because he was not getting his reward. Isn't that interesting? Rats did the same thing when they were testing certain medicines. Rats that learned in the beginning to hit a certain little thing and taste, get the uh, liquid that they were putting in this dispenser. At first, it was sweet and it was pleasant and it was reward. And they began then, once the habit was developed, they would put poison in it. This is terrible. Poison in it. And they would still, though, because the habit was so strong and the pleasure center of their brain, they were still seeking that reward they would continually, time and time again, be hitting that little sensor that was supposed to deliver pleasant, which actually then was killing them. Because craving fuels habit. And because pain and pleasure light up in the same part of the brain. So what once was creating pleasure for me, and a habit was formed, is actually now creating pain, and I don't recognize it. I think also like one of the reasons, I feel like we're wired to experience pleasure, but we know that we also experience pain. And I think that people, um, I think it's, we see it in addictions, we see it in self-destructive behaviors. Sometimes people just want to feel something. So I wanna feel something, because feeling something is a reward. And so cutting, if we don't understand cutting, it makes no sense to us, cutting, they actually are feeling something. And that pleasure part of their brain is lighting up, even though it's pain. So it shows us, we can look at it on an emotional level, a spiritual inner healing counseling level, and we can also look at it from a physiological level of what is actually happening there. Why would the rats continually get go back to that, even though it was really hurting them, it was destroying them? Why would a person think that cutting is actually going to solve any problems? Because it is... It is a reward that I'm being conditioned because I'm feeling, and I need to feel something. Does that make sense to y'all? Um, so 
I was going to read you something about that. Oh, Lord have mercy. So I want you to do this. Get out your just piece of paper. So knowing craving drives habit, take a habit you want to create. You might by do that by finding a habit you really aren't real happy with. <laughs> oh, I forgot to say about distractions. So distractions, they would open a door and let other monkeys come in, or they would bring another distracting thing happening in the room. And the monkeys that were more easily distracted, they just chose that new thing. And they went off and did the new thing. Julio, though, was so driven by the reward. Julio was so driven by the habit and the craving. He just pushed everything aside, and he was bent on that one thing. So habit, in the development process, is having to continually push aside the distractions and make a deliberate choice and conscious, like every single day, whatever that takes, whether it's cue cards, whether it's a note by my bed and a note on my mirror and my tennis shoes by my coffee maker, it's deciding that one thing, I'm going to go after that reward, even though all of these other rewards are being offered me. Does that make sense? That's more important to me. She wanted to, Lisa wanted to trek across Egypt. She's just like, I'm just going to quit smoking. And then after, I don't know how long it didn't say, months of not smoking, she just was naturally chose to eat differently, choose other foods. She then began to save her money. You know, everything began to follow that. Other behaviors will follow habit. Other rewards will follow habit. So if craving fuels behavior, I was trying to think of the biblical. I was like, okay, what is the biblical um, word for craving, and I believe it's expectation. I believe it's hope. Okay, so hope attracts what it anticipates, right? Hope is what is a is the confident expectation of good. So, what are you expecting? What are you anticipating? What are you hoping for? Zechariah 9.12 says, Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. So prisoners of hope build strongholds. Thought structures. Patterns of thinking. So if I am a prisoner of hope, I am going, that's my one thing. I'm going to, my expectation, my anticipation, my hope is going to bring into reality what I'm placing it on, okay? So what is that thing? What are you expecting? What are you anticipating? What habit are you wanting to replace? What new habit are you wanting to form? And write it down. And sometimes I think it's easier to think of a reward. Like she, Lisa, wanted to trek across the desert in Egypt. What would that look like? What would that feel like? Is there anything that you need to change to get that reward? So choose one thing, not lots of things, 
One thing, you know what the reward is, trek across Egypt. What is the cue that's gonna trigger you every day into that place? For hers, for her, it was, I need to quit smoking. So day by day, deliberate choice, she put that in the forefront of her mind. She was creating a habit until she didn't even have to think about that anymore and it freed up brain space to think about something else, do something else. And then after, I can't remember how long it was, a year or two, I don't even think, yeah, I think it was about a year. She wasn't even thinking about all those things anymore. She wasn't thinking, I need to choose to eat right, I need to choose to not smoke, I need to choose to do this. She was now doing it automatically. So you can do the same thing. I am doing the same thing with one thing. And then that little one thing actually has the potential to change a whole series of things in your life and set your whole life on a different trajectory. Trajectory, thank you. So if you know the reward, choose the cue. What's your cue, what's your trigger? What's the click that the rat, oh, chocolate. (laughs) Smell the cinnamon, oh, cinnamons. Your cue is, oh, sense of smell, there's my reward, so for me, Say I am. I want to be really strong again. Like I want. I miss working out. I miss really lifting weights. I mean, I've got. I've had a bad knee for years. Um, that's been an excuse. I've got a bad knee, you know. And now I'm above fifty. You know, in my head there's these things. But what do I want? I'm not even saying I want to be a stick skinny model. I want to be strong again. Like I miss feeling really strong. And I loved the way that felt. That felt super healthy. And if I want to feel that way again, I need to create a cue. And it's and it can't be a list of 10 things I need to do every day. Okay, you need to not eat that and not drink that. and need to do this. I have to choose one thing. So what's my trigger? I mean, what's my, yeah, what's my trigger? What's my cue? And for every one of you, that's going to look differently. Now, we can pretend like we're just doing a bunch of self-help in here, or we can recognize that this is actually a key to transformation. Because we can be flighty, charismatic Christians all day long and carry flags and go, woohoo, Jesus, and still be living however I want. But as long as I'm, you know, crying Jesus and I'm, you know, you don't really have to know what's going on in here. But what's really going on in here is going to begin to translate out here into my behavior. And my behavior is what people are reading. Who I am, my, identif- my identity is driving and fueling me. And so every single one of us, he has given us everything that we need to have our thoughts rewired, to have our mind telling our brain and our bodies what to do, not just being tossed here and there. I think it's why James says when you're devil-minded, when you're listening to this thing and that thing and this thing and that thing, you're literally driven and tossed here and there like the wind. And he tell- tells us we're supposed to be mature. We stand, and I am not swayed by other people's opinions and on every wind of doctrine that comes my way because I'm growing up and I'm learning how to be mature. And maturity owns who I am. I know who I am, and my identity is just living out loud. It's unconscious now. Don't even have to think about it. So I feel like what the Lord wants us to do, I just feel like there's so much in the Word that we can bring out There's so much in science and psychology that we can marry it with and make it super practical. Like, this is really practical stuff. Like, I've talked to quite a few of you in here who are like, this is really good 
practical stuff that I can immediately begin to put into use. And it's all the word. It's the word. It's how he designed us to live. And so are there any quick questions that y'all have? Any observations? Anything you want to share?